Hello everyone, it's Friday the 4th of November and welcome to episode 128 of the Kite Podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. Now it's been another big week in the Black Sea region. Starting last weekend with Russia announcing the suspension of its involvement in the deal that, in essence, allowed Ukraine to export grain across the Black Sea. This followed a Russian accusation that Ukraine issued a drone attack on the Russian Black Sea fleet at Sevastopol. However, Russia U-turned on this decision on Wednesday. Trade recommenced and the first seven vessels left ports on the Ukrainian coast yesterday. As a result of all this, however, there have been clear implications for grain exports and the markets led by uncertainty. And as Chris will no doubt tell us more about today, UK milk volumes have increased significantly, which has its own set of impacts. So with all that happening, producer Becky decided that there was only one thing we could do, and that is to bring in the big guns. So we're not only joined by Eric Elgesmer, founder and director of Strategic Analysis Services BV, but also with us is founder and CEO at CRM Agrid Commodities, James Bolsworth, representing Kite. We have managing partner, John Allen, as well as podcast producer and senior consultant at uh, Kite, Becky Leach. And as always, we're joined by everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walklent. Chris, let's go over to you. Time for the Milk Market Report. Where are you this week? There's been some discussion about this before pre-recording. Well, first of all, that's nice, isn't it? I mean, I slave week in, week out on this podcast. And when the going <laughs> gets tough, Becky decides to bring in the big. <laughs> <laughs> the inference there being Mr. Eric, Mr. Jim and John are the artillery officers on the market. <laughs> while little old me runs around in shorts with a pop gun. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, Chris. We always just traditionally put your name up. <laughs> I'm going to have to work on your ego again this week. Uh... Anyway, to where I am, and I'm bringing you my report from a little place you might have heard of, Will, called Anglesey. Because it's where I've been this week. I was going to visit Mona Dairies, the new plant there, but they decided they couldn't host me this time. So I went to see Glambia instead, the company that can produce whatever cheese you like, so long as it's mozzarella. (laughs) I've not been around a mozz plant before, you know, and it was certainly very impressive before I thought mozzarella was mozzarella was mozzarella. But it isn't. These guys are magicians with the stuff and there's loads of different sorts. But away from dreams of yummy cheese to even more tales of trading sleaze. And where are we on the markets? Well, we've had another full GDT this week, but that was down again by 3.9%. So eight losses out of the last 10 auctions now. And to recap the last three, uh, down 3.5%, down 4.6%, down 3.9%. And the average is now the lowest it has been since January 2021 at $3,500. Skim milk is now below the $3,000 threshold and Arla's skim powder fetched the equivalent of €3,000, which may, Eric, be where the EU market is now. We might turn to that later on. uh, this uh, this might slow the fall. Who the heck knows in this market? Possibly those big guns. 
Obviously, the ripples of that spread far and wide, and I'm sad to say that EU commodity markets have not yet hit the bottom. Uh, spot prices are continuing to fall. Offers for butter are down to 5850 euros now, with buyers bidding as low as 5600 And it's the same story for quarter one. And as I said, skim powder is below or at 3,000 euros. So converting butter and powder to a farm gate equivalent gives us 36 pence. And that's also where the GDT commodities convert to. But don't worry yet. I can't see you being paid a price as low as 35p as I think there will be rioting in the milk fields to start with. And then no milk left at all. I spoke to one processor this week, not Glambier, I hasten to add, who reckons that if we can get to after the flush with a four in front of the milk price, they think we'll have done very well given what's happening now. In the UK, I hear cream is all over the place due to factory shutdowns and breakdowns, and there's a lot of milk around anyway. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot record-breaking loads. So cream's either side of the £2.40 level, I think. I did have one processor saying it's at 250 I think he's been a tad optimistic. Uh, the futures, well, that's a horror show too. Uh, EU buttered down over €100 Euros again, um, and contract prices are very similar to the traded market. Same story on cheese as it is for butter. Uh, the latest spot prices are down 250 euros in a week for mozzarella to 4250 euros. The Edem and Goud are down 150 euros to 4400. Um, but curd is holding up well still. I think it's the only commodity that isn't crashing, and that bodes well for mild cheddar prices and what bodes well for cheddar bodes well for the uk market and your milk prices and finally spot prices is at 45 to 47 p so there you are i'm now going to play with my pop gun while you listen to the big guns <laughs> but if you hear somebody shouting bang every now and again in the background that'll be me just trying to get some attention and to make sure i'm not forgotten <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> He's having a tantrum, Becky. <laughs> yeah. I'll treat him like I do my four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris. James, let's go to you first. Can you give us um, your perspective, what's happened um, over the last few weeks and, and how have traders reacted? What's it mean for commodity markets in the short to medium term? Yeah, well, thanks, Will, and uh, thank you all for inviting me uh, back onto the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, you know, clearly, uh, markets are no less volatile than uh, the last couple of times uh, where uh, we've all spoken. But it, you know, what has been highlighted is uh, you know just uh, they say in politics a day is a long time. Well, in grain markets at the moment, an hour feels like it, and you know that has just been highlighted over the course of this week, where uh, initially, as Ben said, we heard the news that Russia has suspended participation in the grain corridor. Uh, and 
on that news, which came out over the weekend, uh, we saw initially Chicago prices uh, rallying sharply. Uh, and then when the European markets uh, opened, we saw a, a significant move uh, there too, just highlighting the risk. So, you know, from that perspective, uh, what we've seen is very, very significant. Um, However, uh, you know, underlying the, the, the big market moves, um, you know, when we looked at the physical flow, when we looked at the domestic pricing within Ukraine itself, um, you know, shipments were continuing to flow, boats were being loaded, there was some noise around the outskirts, around um, you know, insurers pulling out. Um, but what does it show us? It shows us really how fickle this this strategy is at, it, within Russia um, uh, and uh, regarding this deal in particular, um, uh, that the markets are, are clearly uh, seeing what is going on there as high risk. But at the same time, they're very aware that uh, to date, the grain corridor has been a great success. Um, uh, you know, it's likely that during October, we will have seen uh, record season uh, Ukrainian corn exports and uh, Russian wheat exports, which is really needed, particularly when you consider in Ukraine, uh, we have uh, very high stocks. Uh, we're seeing bags being distributed to Ukrainian farmers. And uh, all this uh, recent event has done is highlighted the risk that um, should the corridor not continue beyond uh, November the 18th, which is when it is due to be renewed. Um, and you know there is still no certainty around that. But should that not happen, then uh, the world will be short again of a major supplier of global grains. And uh, that is what is keeping the markets very, very nervous, which is highlighted by this significant volatility. Maybe, maybe this is all part of the strategy. And, and this is Russia trying to remind us um, how important um, uh, this is uh, to global food supply and and, uh, and uh, maybe trying to get some uh, some favorable treatment as a result. Um, uh, but you know there is still time for this story to play out over the next few weeks and uh, and, and certainly needs monitoring. Hmm. For sure. Eric, let's bring you in. Um, can you give us your perspective on, on what's been happening? Perhaps your reaction to what, what James has just been said as well. Well, first, <clears throat> Will, thanks for inviting me. And um, especially to Chris, I say I'll try to live up to the big um, image and probably fail, which makes you smile. <laughs> I think what we need to look at, uh, especially, and I'll, I'll come with an introduction, especially on, on the Black Sea, uh, a little bit beyond dairy, but I'll, I'll turn it into uh, what matters to dairy because that's what, what we're here for. I think we need to look at Turkey. Turkey's needs and positions. First of all, there's a re-election that Erdogan would like to see happening next year. Now, if anyone knows that re-elections matter, it's been your wonderful Prime Minister Churchill in 45 that certainly saw Count Atlee win after having done so uh, wonderful things for his country. So Erdogan may perceive him to be the Churchill of his times, that doesn't guarantee him winning his election. He's quite nervous about it, especially when his inflation is rampant at 80%. So he needs access to gas from Russia. He's got interests in Syria that he doesn't want to give up. He holds the option to weaponize refugees to the West, if only to make sure the West tolerates Turkey to do deals with, um, with Russia, which no other Western country would get away with. 
At the same time, he's selling drones to uh, to the Ukraine. He's still a member of NATO. And, and here's the key point. He controls access to the Black Sea and the Bosporus. So it's not just the uh, Ukrainian exports that matter. It's also the Russian exports. Because the moment Turkey gets cross with Russia, Russia loses its access to cash for its exports, uh, for its exports of grain. As I see it, Turkey today being tolerated by the rest of the West and, and NATO for, for playing an ambiguous role when it comes to the uh, trade sanctions on, on Russia, is Russia's lifeline to technology, weaponry, etc. in times of sanctions. And Russia cannot give away that lifeline, cannot see the Bosporus being blocked for rich, Russian shipping. So Erdogan and Putin met at least four times this month and Turkey needs Russia, but Russia needs Turkey. And that gives Turkey the negotiation tip to basically allow these grain deals to happen because Turkey is a benefactor of those. Now, as, a, as an analyst, I believe ongoing supplies from Ukraine will may well survive the 8th, November 18th if only Turkey and Russia need each other for different reasons, as I just explained. Which means for the dairy industry, because that's what we're here for, that I believe grain, even though feed prices are already high, grain and maize exports will continue and will not be uh, fundamentally supporting, say, a turnaround in the current uh, correction of dairy prices. Okay. I mean, we did say, yeah, a big run. Uh, that was an exercise. Uh, uh, Becky, the uh, yeah, the very interesting, Eric, and that's great perspective to bring in, isn't it? A bit of a sidewinder as well, but uh, yeah, because it was no surprise that Putin behaves like he 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 does, is it? In terms of what he's doing, but you're saying that actually that that relationship between could could he just um, say, well, I'll do a deal with you, Erdogan, and actually uh, I've got all the grain in Russia because Russia has had a fantastic harvest. So, and Russia needs the money. So actually trying to restrict exports from Ukraine and then sell them Russian grain and stolen Ukrainian grain is good for Russia, isn't it? Because they need they need the money. Isn't that a card he could, Putin could try and play? Basically too hard, my worry, John, is that um, the West will put so much pressure on Turkey to close the Bosporus that he, he loses all. Mm. In my perspective, Neither grain nor maize exports, whether they're from Russia nor from um, the Ukraine, fundamentally are a part to play in uh, Putin's main game, which is dividing Europe against itself. Yeah. A divided Europe is what he needs, because a divided Europe will no longer support the Ukraine with uh, weaponry and, and other facilities. And the moment the Ukraine loses that support of the West, that's the moment these negotiations for the Ukraine become inevitable, which is what Putin would like to see tomorrow. Yeah. So because because he still has a territory that he gained. So anything that contributes to a divided Europe will be priority number one. I doubt whether blocking this grain deal is in that respect conducive to Russia's interest of dividing Europe. Yeah. And how big was that harvest in Russia, James? Uh, so wheat, the, the wheat harvest, in fact, 
um, was a record. So we are looking at a crop of around about 95 million tonnes. So an increase of around 10 million tonnes on, on the last crop. So there is uh, certainly there an incentive uh, for uh, Russia to uh, see these exports maintained, a very strong incentive. Um, as well, sort of adding to Eric's um, excellent comments, uh, it, it, this is a very expensive war for Russia and uh, it needs funding and uh, they don't have limitless supplies uh, of, of rubles. So, you know, they need to maintain trade of both oil and, 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 and gas and, and indeed grain in order to facilitate this. Uh, so, you know, that obviously I think is going to have a bearing on uh, how incentivized they are to continue this grain deal beyond November the 18th where it's due to be renewed. Yeah, I mean, James, with all that in mind, and largely we're thinking about risk here, I mean, you said last time that you were on that traders have built some of that into, into the pricing strategies, but I'm interested in putting what's just happened in context and, again, what might happen um, in terms of building market resilience. What does this mean in terms of risk and risk strategy? Yeah, so uh, the... the the tr- the, the, there's two sides to the sort of speculative uh, world, if that's what we're referring to. You know, you've got obviously the speculative traders, the investors who aren't physically taking any supplies themselves, um, and then they could be broken down into um, short and longer term, or index funds and speculative funds. So index funds would be more like pension institutions who would take a long term position um, uh, in in the commodity markets without as much concern for the short-term vagaries, um, whereas the speculative funds are out to day trade, essentially, or maybe trade over the course of a few weeks and or even hours and uh, and uh, make profits on the shorter-term variations. Um, so, you know, that putting the physical trade to one side, what we had seen uh, prior to uh, this, uh, this event over the weekend uh, was that actually um, speculative funds had gone from holding a very, very long position earlier in the summer. And by long, I mean they were very bullish. So they'd bought a lot of the supply um, uh, available on the futures, uh, the open interest, so the amount of funds traded, which were um, uh, from the, uh, the from the, um, the, the, the the traders themselves had increased. Um, and they were obviously wanting to expose themselves to these very bullish markets as well as the fact we saw inflation running riot around the world and they were looking to hedge their positions in other markets by using agricultural commodities, which traditionally have been a very good inflation hedge. What we then saw was um, really since May, uh, we started to see strong signals from uh, global central banks and economists that we were going to likely see a significant uh, uh, recessions um, in major economies around the world, and um, and that would therefore have a big impact on demand for commodities more broadly, um, as well as the fact that it would lead to a strengthening in the dollar, which is what we've seen uh, as a safe haven um, asset. Uh, what that does is, uh, firstly, the demand side obviously puts pressure on commodity prices uh, when it falls. Uh, as well as the fact that a stronger dollar uh, also puts pressure on demand. Because if you think about most of the major importers in the world um, who are buying their commodities in dollars, as the dollar rises and gets stronger, the cost of what they are having to buy in uh, is is getting more expensive. And so they can't afford to buy as much, which is one of the big problems at the moment with um, 
the way that the the particularly the Federal Reserve, the U.S. central bank, is uh, acting in order to um, mitigate the impact of recession and help control inflation uh, within within the U.S. It's also uh, almost driving inflation in other importing nations, particularly when referenced to, to food, um, because they're importing so much. So. Going back to what that meant for speculative traders, it meant that they that they started to sell a lot of these long bullish positions to a point where actually they had a what's called a net short position, which means they're actually bearish towards the market on on the whole um, uh, pre what we saw last weekend. We then obviously saw um, uh, Russia uh, uh, um, uh, relieve themselves of their participation in the in the corridor and uh, that uh, led to strong buying a lot of that would have come from the funds uh, as well um, but yeah since then we've seen them selling off a lot of those positions so they are trading really on or being fed onto the day-to-day news but they are certainly driving a lot of this volatility and uh, and that is likely to be maintained uh, but I think uh, so <laughs> When you compare it to where we were before, it's unlikely they're going to build the same long positions. Firstly, considering the fact we have harvest. Secondly, the market is now fairly used to constricted supplies of of Ukrainian and and, and Black Sea uh, grains. And thirdly, we have uh, this global economic um, uh, lull, which uh, is obviously uh, reducing the demand and therefore the appetite of, of, of investors in order to want to get exposure to these markets. Well, and, and, and that's Big Bertha, isn't it? The howitzer here. God, that was serious, James. <laughs> you throw the ball back now to Eric, Jay Powell. You know, I mean, the Fed Reserve has, has obviously come out and taking James's point there, Eric. Then you know the interrelationship between the end of QE, the Fed trying to suppress inflation putting up interest rates, all these distortions. And, and they're playing out in the dairy markets now, aren't they? Because, you know, the the dollar strength and the recession that's coming down the line is is playing into dairy markets as well, isn't it? I mean, how do you how did you react to the comments that uh, James was making there? I fully agree with, with James emphasising the relevance of the Fed policies over the past say, 12 months, we've seen the euro and the pound, say, devaluate against the U.S. dollar by about 15 to 20 percent. Yeah. That, <clears throat> what that means is that when dairy markets, especially in protein, they tend to be relatively uh, pricing in, of Oceania, and Europe tends to be very close to each other. It rarely has more than 200 euro put on difference between the one and the other S&P price. Now you've got 15% inflation or 15% devaluation of the euro. That means that for a European consumer, dairy has gone up to 15%, when for, for say, an emerging market consumer, depends a little bit on where they are, that inflation rate has not been as high. What we've, we've found is that especially the major dairy importing nations tend to have had much lower inflation, uh, devaluation against the dollar than euro and the pound, meaning that they they feel less buying power stress in their wallets than European consumers feel in theirs. So for European consumers, the price of dairy, especially the protein component, gone up much more steeply than for consumers in the Middle East, where most currencies are packed to the US dollar. 
uh, in China, where the Chinese currency, the renminbi, has actually uh, appreciated against the US dollar. But even in places like Indonesia and the Philippines, where where over the past five to say past twelve months, you see five to ten percent devaluation, but much less than the euro. In other right, in other words. Relatively speaking, the dairy market has become even more flat, and all these mid-income consumers in parts of um, Asia and Africa that that say uh, could retain their access to dairy easier than European consumers. But that's why the European consumers feel all this inflation in their wallets so strongly. And now the question is: Will our central banks, either in Frankfurt or in London, in Threadneedle Street, will they pick up on this? Yeah. And if they do, how harsh will they uh, will they kill the economic growth, which is almost by default the uh, impact of, um, of of rapid increase of uh, of interest rates? Mm. Now that, that's that's the balancing act we see in Europe. That's the balancing act you see in London, and um, it it will be a trade off between uh, economic decline and the depth of the recession on the one hand, and inflation on the other hand, and probably. Bankers now tend to move politicians too late, however, away from supporting short-term economic gain to uh, long-term uh, economic to reduce the long-term economic gain of inflation. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lot to take in, isn't it, um, <laughs> Chris? Well, let's, I, 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 I tell you what, Will, I'm, I'm going to have to listen back just, to this episode. Like, I was, three I was times, literally though. just sitting there thinking, what what sort of crazy times we're living through. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think I think it, I think Will, it, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, like you said, the response. And that's why they are big guns, isn't it? Because we this isn't just about the trade of grain or or the trade of dairy. Of dairy. I mean, what you what we've heard there is is how the unwinding of QE is starting to impact on world economies and in impacts on commodities and it, and. It's impacting on demand, as Eric's saying, and and there's a demand effect um, that's affecting the dairy markets. I mean, that Chris, you, you, you know, your report earlier, you know, that there is no major excess of supply that's bringing down the markets. I mean, if this isn't the old pattern of high prices. The cure for high prices is high prices because farmers produce too much. I know we've got the issue about the farmers in the UK, which we can talk about, but that, I think that's separate to this, isn't it? The, the global well, I think they, there is more milk about in, in France and Germany, which is yeah. the, big, the big drivers. At the same time, there's, there's everything that's going on that that uh, James and Eric have talked about. But I, I think Eric touched on something that really does affect farmers. And Eric talked about the Middle East mm. having less inflation and more buying power. They buy the curd or they buy a lot of curd, mm. which supports the cheese price here. Mm. So if there are listeners now who think, crikey, this is way over my head, this doesn't affect me at all, Actually, if you sell to a cheesemaker, it does. Yep. And if you sell to a liquid processor, well, they have to match the cheese price. So all of this macroeconomic stuff does affect them. And what's happening is they're getting a good milk price now all over Europe. Arla have gone up. Friesland Campina have held. So the signals to the farmers are everything in the garden is rosy. Oh. When on the global stage, 
everything is going to hell in a handcart on a macro front. Mm. Uh, that, that 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 Saudi uh, or the Middle East stuff. I, I read that you know with all this trade of you know the inflation of oil and gas, it's put three point five trillion extra dollars into the Middle Eastern economies. That, that's where the transfer of monies have gone to from the West to the Middle East. So I'm not saying they're going to consume a lot of more dairy, are they, Eric? But but actually these these trade flows, they're almost lending us the money now back with the the you know for all these energy schemes. They're almost lending it back to us so we can buy their energy. It's like buying everything on the on the never never, isn't it? So these are big factors that are playing out, isn't it, Eric? They are, and I, I very appreciate Chris uh, turning all kind of analyst abstract talk into clear messages. Yeah. Chris is right. It does affect, at present, cheese prices are unnaturally high compared to home milk prices. Very unusually high. And that is, <clears throat> that's, that's evidence, as Chris says, that's evidence of the cheese markets being relatively healthy still. And lack of milk, so processors produce the cheese, whatever they can make, and by default, therefore, cannot or just do not want to produce the milk powders, because the milk powders demand globally is weaker than the cheese market's demand, which is these middle-income and high-income consumers that do not yet feel so much affected by um, the economic stress than the lower-income consumers that tend to be more, uh, say, the basis for milk powders. Chris, can, can I just um, bring us back to the UK now? What, when it, you, you mentioned there's a lot of milk around in the UK, and we talked briefly about milk volumes. Perhaps we can just go into that a bit more. What what impact is all that having at the moment in the UK? Well, we've had a great autumn, haven't we, in terms of milk production? And John might come to that in the future, but in, in a bit. But a few stats up until the 18th of September, there was only one day in the whole of 2022 that had been higher than 2021. And that happened to be the peak day back in May, I think it was. So only one day had been higher. Um, That's all changed. In October, there's 22 days of daily volume for October published so far. Of those, 16 days have set a new record high for milk production in the UK. That's where we are. And Germany is ahead of last year uh, for the first time this year on a rolling monthly basis. France, I haven't seen data for France. They won't be much different. And we're getting this autumn flush of milk from autumn carvers here. and. That's coinciding with the drop in demand and panicking the traders. The traders over the last year, uh, the buyers have been beaten up by the sellers and they think it's payback time. They're out for revenge and they're out for blood. And that's what's happening on, on the markets. Yeah, great. Whether this milk will drop off when the cows are housed is a technical question for you, John. We have to hope that it is. And we also have to hope that 
come the spring, there is some mitigation of these milk volumes. Because let's not forget that Dale Farm have taken capacity out with the closure of two factories up north. And if we have a lot of milk in the spring, we get back to that capacity issue. Have we got enough processing? In the past, we could export it. We could ship it to France and Milk Mark did in droves. That's not so easy now. So we've got a bit of a messy situation building up with with milk volumes at the same time as we've got a very messy situation building up on the global demand side. Yeah. On the, I mean, just those great points, Chris, Uh, the, just to fill in, I mean, there's two elements to the flush that we are looking at with processes at present. One is you're right about the very mild autumn. And for those herds that have stayed out, then they've actually had, like spring grazing again so it's been quite a big flush but secondly you're right about the uh, autumn block carvers there's been a big move to autumn block carvers i think 18 percent of herds now carving the autumn officially as block carving herds and uh, that's all very well because and um, but bringing them those autumn carvers a lot of them have been put in straight onto winter rations and with a very positive milk price feed price ratio then we've got a burst of milk from them. And we're seeing those cows performing four or 5% above what they would do normally because they've been housed and they're performing very well. So I think that is a fact. I mean, it's interesting and I view, value Eric's comments here. I think the situation, the, the UK itself per se with a flush of milk shouldn't shift world markets. So I think we have to be careful about that. I think there's an element of UK farmers will start to say, oh, well, it's our fault, it's whatever. I'm not sure that's the case. But the the, the extra milk in France and Germany is a concern because they, they do produce so much milk between them. They produce five times more than what the UK produces. So that does matter. And I think the higher prices there have come about largely because um, processors want want to retain their milk supply because they're very worried about milk supplies dropping in Europe. I mean, I think all are picked up are down over 1% across Europe, despite paying these high prices. I think they're concerned because of the drought. So they're paying high prices to compensate for these high fee costs that uh, James has talked about. And I think the prices they're getting in Europe, which are over 60 euro cents, admittedly for high value, high, high quality milk, are very incentive. Now the danger, the, the, the if prices do fall in Q one and Q two next year, then will will those farmers in Europe actually with a falling price will they actually have the confidence and the ability to compensate to buy in those feeds because they've got the confidence to do it at present because they've got lower forage stocks they've got poorer quality forage stocks they can afford to buy the feed. Um, but if they don't, then that's where the fall could come back and there could be a readjustment in Europe next year. I mean, I can see you, you're, you're nodding, Eric. So please comment on that analysis. Yeah, briefly put, John, I think there's, there's two factors that currently say um, matter. One is we've seen in the times of COVID-19 and the logistic, global logistic disruptions, we've seen transportation costs for containers across the world go sky high, etc. Most of that effect is over. Yeah, that's true. The response in the dairy markets to that particular logistic 
budgetary uh, uncertainty has been to stock up more than normal in buyer markets from just in time, which was what they were used to do, to just in case. So they, they accepted more working capital in exchange for security of supply locally. I wonder whether they're now destocking. These stock figures are very hard to get, but that's one of the elements that we, I believe contributes to the current weak buying by various dairy importers. Because if logistics, again, are as reliable as they were in 2019, you can afford to bring down your stocks. If everybody does that at the same time, you, for a quarter, you don't need to buy so much. So I hope we are not mistaking, say, the fundamentals for the, the signal for the noise. The noise is that we may have some destocking because logistics are returning back. And then finance directors are saying, what's this working capital doing on my balance sheet? And on the other hand, the fundamental health of the world economy, say especially of the dairy importing nations, will keep demand strong there. I think we'll see a recovery in the first half, say probably Q2 of next year. Not so much because the, the demand goes through the roof, but certainly because demand remains strong. And supply will be uh, the victim of the current correction in commodity prices, will, which will inevitably lead to a correction in raw milk prices going forward. That, those, that correction will not easily be absorbed by the farmers because they will have, get a cash flow issue and, and will not have the cash to buy superb feed to compensate for um, their weak uh, summer harvest due to the drought. Yeah, because the, I think the facts I've been talking to clients about, and I think you know you, you, you're making the point there, Eric, that probably we are at the top of the market, and it was a surprise what Arla did with their milk price. But I think there's elements of competition for milk elsewhere in Europe that are playing a hand here. But the, but but the it, but if we're at the top, then okay, you can say there will be a fall. The question then is how big is the fall? Now, when you when you look at futures markets, then the fall could be as low as to 34, 35 pence ex farm next year. Well, we know the cost of production in the UK certainly is 46, is probably higher than that in parts of Europe. So therefore, trying to square a circle where you've got market prices saying we're only going to pay you 34p, cost of production at, uh, at 46, that's too big a gap to, to be sustainable. So therefore, you, your fundamentals are fairly strong in terms of, of uh, avoid, maybe you can't avoid a fall, but it's how far that fall would be. And that those those sorts of levels of falls, Chris, would be dramatic and yeah, probably right. unsustainable. I think it's worthwhile, because I've had a few questions about Arla's move, <clears throat> and I think it's worthwhile <clears throat> clarifying it. Um, Arla are milk processors, they're not bankers, and they have a policy of not saving up the money when they've got the money, they will pay it out. Some some have said to me, well, why didn't they just save up the money, put it in a pot and then make the price drop when it comes less than it otherwise would have been? But that's not what Arla do. They say, in effect, if the farmer wants to save his money, that's up to the farmer. We're not bankers. We'll pay it out. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
well, that's brought us quite nicely back to farmers. Um, let's let's finish with a question for all of you, um, and we'll start. We'll go with Eric first. But how do farmers and processors ensure that they are um, as resilient as possible to ride through all these geopolitical struggles? I mean, what what sort of practical measures practical measures can they can they take to to ride all this out? Eric, well, I, I, I'm a bit reluctant to talk about farmers with all these experts um, in this field uh, that speak after me, but I, I'm, I tend to think that processors are in a pretty difficult spot. Milk prices always are two to three months behind commodity prices. So when commodity prices slide down, as they do now sharply, milk prices always have this two to three months delay, and those are difficult months processors because they're not a bank but they have to keep liquid at the same time they see demands for labor uh, say salaries go up because of inflation they see energy prices for their processing especially those in Europe compared to those in New Zealand and the US see them come up relatively so on the one hand they see the cost come up they see uh, their um, returns on commodities being down, still having to pay these high milk prices. So at the end of the day, they probably do what they have always been doing. They'll be cutting costs, be watchful of their costs. They probably will stick to their prices to retail, but retail will push back because of inflation very hard at them. And the battle for, for um, between processors and retailers who gets um, hit most in this downturn uh, depends a little bit on the, the, say, relative market shares that processors have vis-a-vis retailers. But I can assure you that battle will be bloody and then our big guns will will be Enfields by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> What's great point. So there's, going be, there's going to be some winners and losers in processors then, Eric. Yeah, those processors I, I, that have managed their balance sheet, balance sheet relatively debt-free, will probably now be more resilient than those that have invested like crazy at, uh, say, um, and leveraging their uh, their balance sheet because their banks will be calling first. Mm. John, what, what, what's what's your opinion on this? Well, I think at farm level, and we we have been encouraging them. And you, you had Nick Evans on from Oxbury a couple, few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. um, I, I I I think we're encouraging our clients to um, actually build up some cash reserves. Cash flows are relatively positive. It's that time of year. Uh, milk prices have been good now. They're starting to feed through into positive cash. Got some BPS payments coming through. Uh, I think in general. Uh, sentiment at farm level has improved I, I we would encourage clients to try and build up some cash reserves even if they can't build up cash reserves certainly don't don't uh, reduce overdraft limits don't get pressurized to do that clear creditors so you've got some headroom this isn't a panic measure it's just about building up financial resilience really and i think the other big thing i would say is keep your head because I think what we're talking about here today, some fairly big stuff, and it's a big correction that's coming down the line. But the fundamentals are that even if we go into a recession, people do buy food. They might trade down and they might want to spend less money, but they still buy food. It's the big ticket items 
like cars, holidays, and and I guess houses, which are going to probably take the take the uh, correction. And I think trying to talk ourselves into doom and gloom on food is is a dangerous thing. So I would say to farmers, you know, it's still a commodity, it's still a sector where actually investors would still take a positive outlook when you go through a recession. Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. And we'll, and we'll finish with uh, with the heavy artillery. James, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I would say you know, from, a, from a farmer and processor's perspective, um, uh, I think it's important to remain sort of pragmatic and realistic in a market like this. And, uh, you know, it, unless you've got a direct line to the Kremlin, then then trying to predict long-term market moves is, is, is a risky game. And, I suppose uh, yeah, a, a bit like firing a spud gun against uh, against someone with a hand grenade. Um, to continue the the, the gun metaphors, um, <laughs> yeah, you're going to get hurt unless you are you are very lucky. Um, uh, so um, it, it, it's a case, really. I think of, of firstly, you know, understanding your base case, your costs, your cost of production, um, uh, which I'm assuming most most kite clients will have a pretty good idea of. Um, but then, you know, as well as that, it, it, it's about looking really at the the, the picture and, and where we sit now. Um, you know, we've seen markets at 350. We've uh, this is wheat, uh, UK wheat prices futures here. We've seen markets down at 250. We're currently looking at prices around about 280. So, and, and we've seen a range which has been established of between 250 and 300. So, you know, from a buyer's point of view, from a, uh, it makes sense to look at this range as a level at which the market is, has has found fair value for now, um, uh, and uh, and looking to treat opportunities within that range um, as such. And I think uh, that um, you know, looking more broadly and long term, then you know, in terms of our forecasts. We do expect modest pressure on markets uh, going in grain markets. That is going into next year, uh, but you know within those forecasts there is a lot more upside risk than downside risk, if that makes sense. Mm. So you know just bear in mind that uh, it will not take much in order to really uh, get these markets uh, going again uh, in the wrong direction for buyers, and uh, you know that could easily be an escalation in the war. It could be. Uh, a, an issue on South American weather um, uh, come the spring, or issues with the with the northern hemisphere crop. That there are a number of things which you would not wanting to be rolling the dice on. So I think at this stage, it's a case of just being uh, being sensible and looking at the opportunities when they present themselves, and and uh, try trying to ride out you know, however long this lasts with with as little damage as possible. Mm. Okay. Well, that's been a fantastic episode, but that is all we have time for today. A very big thank you to all our guests, Eric Elgersmer, James Bolsworth, John Allen, Chris Walkland, and podcast producer Becky Leach. Yeah. Popcorn out now, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> we'll include him in the big guns as well. Yeah, yeah huge thank you to, to everyone today. There aren't many people who could take us from... Turkish geopolitics to, to yeah. the cheese cheese and the grain markets to, to autumn carving as well um, so that's been fantastic but thank you to all our listeners as well thank you for listening and um, maybe listen to this episode a few times we'll be back with you next week um, and we'll have Will Jackson on from the HDB next week um, but for now it's goodbye from all of us here <laughs>